The following message was given by Andy Farmer, a pastor at Covenant Fellowship Church in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania, and a guest preacher at Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. I'm going to be in Matthew 13, if you want to turn your Bibles there or your phones, whatever. Um, I'm actually going to be reading from my notes the text, so I'm going to set my Bible down here because I realize if I don't, uh, it will get knocked over in the process. So, Valley Creek is great to be here. I understand that you have celebrated last week your first anniversary. That's a wonderful thing. Congratulations. Congratulations to you. In the church planning world of sovereign grace, we have an understanding that in most cases, within a year, a church plant comes into its own as a church. It develops an identity as a church, it establishes a membership as a church. The people who've gotten involved since the church started are now fully participating in the life of the church. And the community around uh, in the neighborhood recognizes that it is a church. So in my observation, Valley Creek has clearly hit those markers. By the mythical authority vested in me... (laughs) By the Sovereign Grace National Church Planning Committee, I pronounce you no longer a church plant, but a church. Amen. The implication of that is that I am the first preacher in your church. So 30 years from now, when you're thinking, who actually preached first in our church? It'll be my name that's on that. So... Thank you very much for having me to inaugurate your life as a church. Uh, (laughs) The title of my message is Buried in Plain Sight. Now, I understand this is the third message you've heard around Matthew 13. If you're familiar with the general context, Matthew 13 brings us into the experience of a people grappling with life in a tenuous world. There are cultural and political Forces that seem to threaten everything they have and everything they believe in on a daily basis. The religious fabric of their society, which has always given them a sense of order and stability, is fraying. Their religious leaders are divided and seem out of touch with the daily needs and burdens of the people. Religious leaders in conflict constantly. Life is hard and nobody seems to care about him. Into these troubling times comes a man. He's a man who says things that have never been said. And then he does things that have never been done to back that up. At the center of what he says and does is a radical idea of a kingdom. But where is this kingdom, and who is this king? In chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is unloading some big truth about the kingdom. But what he declares about the kingdom, he declares in parables. Parables are small stories Jesus told to highlight big truths. As Jesus explains in this chapter, he spoke in parables to reveal the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, to those who were seeking it and also to hide 
the kingdom from those who weren't. In other words, everyone will hear the words, but not everyone will get the truth. Now, we're not all that different from the people Jesus is teaching. We struggle with our place in a world that seems opposed to what matters to us. We're looking for answers. We're looking for change. We're vulnerable to voices that offer simple answers to complex problems. We need these parables of Jesus to reveal the kingdom to our own eyes. Now there are seven kingdom parables crammed into this one chapter. We're going to focus actually on four small ones. We begin in verse 31. So if you're in Matthew 13, we're starting in verse 31. Jesus says, and Matthew says of Jesus, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And then skip down to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Lord, bless this word today, Lord, I was affected by the reading from Isaiah 6 and the holiness of God on the throne and being aware that I'm a man of unclean lips. Lord, I pray you would touch my lips, Lord, not because I want to speak well, but because I desire that you would speak through me, through this earthen vessel to serve your people today. And bless our hearing as we engage your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we look closer at these parables, we need to ground ourselves in a basic understanding of this kingdom. What is this kingdom of God, or as Jesus describes it in this chapter, this kingdom of heaven. This is where you and I have an advantage over Jesus' audience. We have the whole Bible to show us this kingdom. And the kingdom of God can be found from the very first chapter of Genesis to the very last chapter of Revelation and everywhere in between. Since the kingdom 
is a central theme in Matthew, and you've been in Matthew learning about it each, each week. Let me just offer a summary quote so you know how I'm talking about this kingdom. Scholar George Eldon Ladd spent his life reflecting on and writing about the kingdom of God, and here's what he had to say. Our central thesis is that the kingdom of God is the redemptive reign of God, dynamically active to establish his rule among human beings. And that this kingdom, which will appear as an apocalyptic act at the end of the age, has already come in human history in the person and mission of Jesus to overcome evil, to deliver people from its power, and to bring them into the blessings of God's reign. The kingdom of God involves two great moments, fulfillment within history and consummation at the end of history. So this is what Jesus is talking about when he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Matthew 4.17. This is what Jesus told us to pray for when he says, Pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in Matthew 6, 9, and 10. This is what Jesus promised when he declared this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come, Matthew 24, 14. As Ladd concludes, it is precisely this background which provides the setting for the parables of the kingdom. Now if you're reading through this chapter, you'll notice there are three longer parables. The parable of the soils and sower, the parable of the weeds, and the parable of the net. These have been un unpacked in various ways for you over the past couple of weeks. These longer parables warn us there's a kingdom and you'd better not miss it. You don't want to be barren soil. You don't want to be weeds. You don't want to be bad fish. The four little parables, the mustard seed, the leaven, the treasure, and the pearl of great price... Jesus doesn't explain those parables. And they're not warnings. They're more invitations. Jesus offers them for those who have eyes to see, they tell us where to look. And for those who see, they tell us how to receive. So I have three points today. One, where to look for the kingdom. Two, how to respond to the kingdom. And three is a surprising case study of the kingdom. First point, where to look for the kingdom. We're going to go back into the first two parables we read. I'll read them again so we can get into this a little bit. Matthew 13, 31 again. He put another parable before them saying the kingdom of... Heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger 
than all garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, in all Jesus' parables, he uses common experience. He, he engages people where they are. Now, in my imagination, the mustard tree is the size of a sequoia. I mean, this, we're talking about the kingdom, right? This should be a giant tree that blows us away. That's how I want to view the kingdom. But that's not the picture in view. Most likely, Jesus is referencing here a familiar kind of mustard plant, not really even a tree, that grows up to maybe about 12 feet tall, but when it does in maturity, it looks like a tree. You see, the key to this parable is not the tree, it's the seed. One seed, one tiny seed. In the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds, earlier in the chapter, the picture is of a farmer who is scattering seeds all over the field, hoping things will grow. Here, there's just one seed. That's sown into a one place in the ground carefully by the hand of someone who expects it to grow where it's planted. This idea is not about a field, it's about a garden. A defined area where every plant is carefully cultivated. A mustard tree had Properties that brought out flavor to life and also had healing effects on people. So the owner would plant one seed of a mustard tree at the edge of a garden. That alone was enough. Relatively speaking, it would tower over everything in the garden to the extent that birds who were flying around looking for a place to get out of the desert sun would find shade in this plant, in this tree, in its branches. And if you looked from the outside, looked from afar off, and you saw one tree by itself, chances are you were looking at a mustard tree and therefore a garden. You'd be able to identify the garden by the tree. Jesus wants us to see that the kingdom may look small at any point, but it will inevitably grow into something that is unmistakable and full of life. Brothers and sisters, no authentic work of God ever started big. The kingdom of God is not a TikTok trend. The kingdom of heaven doesn't go viral. It's not launched. It is carefully planted. And it grows largely unseen. So do you look around your world and wonder, 
is God in charge? You look at your life and wonder if anything from God is actually growing there? Do you present, do your present circumstances look more like a wilderness than a garden? In this parable, Jesus invites you to look beyond the barrenness for the mighty seed. It has been planted by God, and it's growing all the time. In verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. In ancient times, bread was a staple of life. It is what everyone depended on. So using the metaphor of bread was very familiar. The picture in this parable is of a woman making a big loaf of bread. I don't know what you have downstairs for after the service, but you do not have this much bread. This is bread for about 100 people, feeding a whole community. This is bread for everyone as much as you want. The basic idea here is that it only takes a little leaven to make a lot of bread. Leaven, or yeast, is a living organism that actually feeds on flour in a process called fermentation. Once the leaven has done its work, Where there was once just flour, now is the full nourishment of bread. The basic point of this parable is that the kingdom of heaven has been infused into the world and is working its way through so that in the end, no part of this world will not be transformed by it. Do you feel that the influence of the world is overwhelming the influence of God. This parable is for you. Take heart. The leaven is at work. And it will not stop until what is prophesied in Revelation eleven fifteen is fulfilled. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. That's the message of the leaven. There will never be anything bigger than the kingdom of God. And there is no place the kingdom of God will not be present. These are parables for those who are looking for the reign of God but cannot see it or who are losing sight of it. Jesus' point is that the kingdom is here and it's growing and don't you miss it. And if you've glimpsed it, Like you are, even as you hear my voice right now. You have to decide what you're going to do about it. And that's the second point. How do we respond to the kingdom? The other two short parables together are treated often as one because they make kind of the same point but from slightly different angles. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Now, to get this story, you have to consider a basic economic question. If I were living in Jesus' time and I had a great treasure, where would I keep it? There are no banks. There are no safes. What people did is literally bury their treasure somewhere on their property till they could decide what they really wanted to do with it. We see a glimpse of that in the parable of the talents where the man receives the talents. He doesn't know what to do with them, so he just buries them. Burying treasure was a common thing. But there are curiosities that Jesus doesn't address in this parable. Who, who buried this treasure initially? Who left it there? Does the owner of the field know the treasure's there? Why was this man in the field in the first place? All we know is a man is walking through a field that he doesn't own. He finds a treasure that he didn't earn. And he knows a good deal when he sees it. So the only way to acquire the treasure is to buy the whole field. So Jesus doubles down on this idea of treasure in a similar story with a few key differences. Verse 45... Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The guy who finds the treasure in the field wasn't looking for it. The merchant has been looking all his life. The guy in the field finds treasure where treasure shouldn't be expected. The merchant identifies great treasure in a world of lesser treasures. In other words, these are two different people who encompass who we might be. Some of you may have stumbled across the treasure like I did of the kingdom having never known it existed. Others of you may have existed in churches or been in religious places where the treasure was there, but you didn't really see the value in it, but you were looking. What they have in common is how they respond to what they find. Now, I know a little bit about hidden treasure. A couple years ago, I was in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, and I went with my friend Josh Pinnell to visit the tomb of the founder of modern Ethiopia, a man named Menelik II. Now, if you know me, you know I'll never pass up an opportunity to visit a famous dead person. So, we're in this shrine to Menelik where the tomb is supposed to be, but, you know, it just wasn't much there. I was kind of disappointed that this great man didn't have anything there. Just saw a few people praying in the tomb. And a guy comes over to us, and he asks us if he wants to see uh, if we wanted to see Menelik's tomb. And I kind of thought, well, I think this is it, right? He said, "Oh no, 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 no." And he walks over to another part of the of the tomb, and he he pulls open these heavy doors in the floor. He says, "Follow me." And so we walk down these steps into a lower chamber. Nice. It wasn't, you know, it, 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 was, it was actually very well kept. But it was a chamber full of tombs of the royal family. And so we're walking around down there. And I turn a corner. 
And I come down these steps and I turn a corner where the steps were and I see nailed up against the steps is this painting in a really nice old frame. It's a glass over it, but there's a painting. It's about maybe this big. And I, I said, what's that? Because it didn't seem to fit, right? And he said, that's a painting by Michelangelo that was given to King Menelik by the Pope in the 1800s. And he said he was really proud of this. That's probably worth over a million dollars. I'm sitting there. That's worth over a million dollars. Now, I knew something about this buried treasure that he didn't know. I knew that Michelangelo was mostly a sculptor and a fresco painter and rarely painted on canvas. Of about 200 known works, he only did 10 paintings on canvas. And the last time one of those was sold, it went for a tidy little $450 million. And I touched it. I don't know if there's a picture. Yeah, that's me right there. So I'm like, I'm like, could I, if I took this, could I run? I, I, I had this. I thought the chances of me getting out of the country with that painting were probably not good. So there were various reasons, including some moral ones, why I decided not to try to steal it. Um, when you're that close to something of incomprehensible value, it takes your breath away. When I saw the painting, it was beautiful, but what hit me was the value of something simply nailed up against the stairs. That they had no idea how much it was really worth. It takes your breath away. It did for me, and I know it did for these two treasure finders that Jesus talks about. But it didn't just take their breath away. It changed their lives. They both made radical, life-altering decisions on the basis of what they found. They sold everything they had to get the one thing they valued most. One commentator says it this way, there is something about the kingdom of heaven which makes Extravagant action, the only proper response. If you see the kingdom and you understand its true value, there's no other response appropriate but to do all you can to get it. Receiving the kingdom is letting go of anything and everything that separates us from what is of true value. The Apostle Paul knows of which I speak. And he told it up like this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, my King. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. When you come face to face 
with the greatest treasurable treasure imaginable. You can't just add it to what you already have. You have to forsake what you have to get what you really want. That's the economics of the kingdom. And, and why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you forsake everything? Missionary martyr Jim Elliott made it about as clear as can be. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. So maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know what, this kingdom, I need, I need to see more. I'm not, I'm not really convinced there is a kingdom. Or maybe you're saying, you know what, I'm not really interested in what I see. I, I can do fine without this kingdom. Or maybe, you know what, I'm willing to make room for the kingdom in my life, but I'm not going to give up everything to get it. I mean, who would do that? Maybe you're thinking, you know what, I, I don't know if I want to make that decision right now. If that's where you are, then you don't understand what lies before you. As we turn the corner to my third point, let me offer you a surprising case study on the kingdom for you to consider as to whether it has value for you. We're going to talk about an event that is referenced in all four Gospels, but we're going to engage it actually from the Gospel of Luke. The event happens on a hill outside Jerusalem called Golgotha, where this man who taught these parables of the kingdom is dying on a cross. Next to him are two convicted criminals. Pick up the story from Luke. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now we think of the burial of Jesus happening after his death in the tomb provided by Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. But there is a cosmic burial that happened to Jesus. And that burial happens on the cross. Jesus was in fact buried in plain sight. The goal of crucifixion was not just to stop him, not just to punish him. It was to bury Jesus and everything he stood for. 
to heap so much shame and mockery and hate upon him that no one would ever want to mention his name again. Any thought of him would be wiped away forever. That was the purpose of the crucifixion. And what they wanted to bury most was his kingship and his kingdom. Every gospel writer references the sign King of the Jews that Pilate hung on the cross over his head. John's gospel emphasizes that it was written in every language that could be read of that day. The cross is where the kingdom of Jesus was supposed to end. Even his friends knew that. As he gasped, dying on the cross, all their hopes for the kingdom were buried under darkness and despair and defeat. They didn't remember the parable of the mustard seed. They didn't see that man hanging on the cross for who he really was. The seed of Adam, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the seed that Jesus himself said must die to produce life. Nobody saw that it was the Father himself who was burying the seed in the redemption of redemption in the sins of humanity. Nobody saw the leaven of life working its way through the death of Jesus on the cross. Nobody there saw the treasure hidden on the cross. Nobody there noticed the ineffable worth of the pearl of great price. Except one very unlikely man. A thief dying next to Jesus on the cross. Somewhere in the breath between, this man has done nothing wrong. And Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This dying man sees what is being buried is not a criminal, but a king and a savior. This dying man spends all he has left to spend his final breath on this world to get what Jesus came to give. It had never even been a thought to him until this very dying moment. And now Jesus is all that matters. He makes the only request that makes sense to him. What does he say? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, when you return to exercise your righteous vengeance on all who have wronged you. Please spare me. And what does Jesus say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now to any Jew, even this criminal Jew, paradise only means one thing. 
the Garden of Eden. A lost world. A garden of wholeness and peace and fullness that no one has seen since the beginning of time. What Jesus is inviting this man to see is that next to this cross, this tree of judgment on a barren hill, there is a tree of life in a peaceful garden. Theologian J.H. Bobbing paints the picture for us like this. We again hear the burbling of the water of life. We again see the tree of life rising stately and high, loaded with God's promises. Paradise is the unspoiled world where the total harmony of all creatures entwines everything into intimate cohesion. Paradise is the kingdom as seen by God on the morning of creation when he saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. That one sentence that Jesus spoke on the cross gives a wholly different meaning to the cross and everything taking place around it. Golgotha lies next to paradise. There is only an extremely thin curtain separating Calvary from paradise. That curtain has to be pierced. And then the paradise opens up with unfathomable riches and glory. None of the mocking crowd notices it. Not even the disciples detect it. Only Jesus sees it. And that one murderer who is standing at the borderline between two worlds. With this dying request, this simple trust in the king dying on tree, a condemned sinner's ultimate destiny is transformed. In the words of the Apostle John, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I have two people in mind as I close. One is a person who doesn't see or doesn't value the kingdom that they do see. Jesus makes an offer. Jesus offers you life with Him forever, peace. The kingdom not just as His rule, but as your joy. What do you have that's worth giving that up for in your life right now. Take stock. Take stock and say, what am I willing to hold on to that will cost me the kingdom? Be honest with yourself. You'll find nothing. You'll find nothing. Nothing you have will last. Only the kingdom of God. And another person I'm thinking about, and that's someone who feels they're too far from God. 
I, I, I think I want this. I would love to have. I just feel too far. I've done too much. I've gone too far. I, I've gone the wrong direction. Friend, if you think you're too far from God, you are not. What the thief on the cross shows us, that you stand between two worlds and Jesus offers you a way to paradise today. If you will simply ask Him. To the church, brothers and sisters, this is why you exist as a church heading into year two. You inhabit a world bereft of the awareness of the glorious kingdom of heaven. But we know the small seed is growing. We know the leaven is working. We know the treasure exists. And we know the worth of what we have. We see the garden from the cross. But all around you are people who don't. I want to close by praying with you as a congregation through a centuries-old prayer from the Valley of Vision that God might make His kingdom known through us and through you. It's going to come up on the screens if you'd all stand. Can I have the band come back up? And you can just read along with me as we pray. Sovereign God, let's all pray together. Thy cause, not my own, engages my heart. And I appeal to Thee with greatest freedom to set Thy kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify Thyself and I shall rejoice. For to bring honor to Thy name is my sole desire. I adore Thee that Thou art God and long that others should know it, feel it, and rejoice in it. Oh, that all men might love and praise Thee, that Thou mightest have all glory from the intelligent world. Let sinners be brought to Thee for Thy dear name. To the eye of reason, everything respecting the conversion of others is as dark as midnight, but thou can accomplish great things. The cause is thine, and it is to thy glory that men should be saved. Lord, use me as thou wilt. Do with me what thou wilt. But, oh, promote thy cause. Let thy kingdom come. Let thy blessed interest be advanced in this world, O oh, do thou bring in great numbers to Jesus. Let me see that glorious day and give me to grasp for multitudes of souls. Let me be willing to die to that end. And while I live, let me labor for thee to the utmost of my strength, spending time profitably in this work both in health and in weakness. It is thy cause and kingdom I long for, not my own. 
Oh, answer thou my request. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Andy Farmer given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.